Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, the director of CT Media, and with me today, as always, is Dr. Russell Moore. Today, we are going to be talking about the rise of deaths of despair in the United States, the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion, and gas stoves. All right, Russell, we're going to kick off today by visiting some of the strangest laws on the books in the United States. These are blue laws, which are laws that are specifically applicable on Sundays. Some of them are familiar probably to most people. Lots of states, illegal to sell alcohol or have professional sports. Montana, it's illegal to fish alone before noon. I think that one may have been written by Eugene Peterson. Um, (laughs) Taking photos in Arizona is illegal before noon. The best examples, I think, come from a couple of different places. I believe it's North Carolina, where you're not allowed to hunt on Sundays except for raccoons and them only until 2 a.m. But Florida takes the cake, as usual, my home state. It's illegal to eat cottage cheese before 6. I'm for that one. (laughs) It is illegal to parachute if you're an unmarried woman on a Sunday. Wait, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. If you're an unmarried woman? Why? I cannot imagine what the answer to that question is. But the best of all is that it is illegal to fart after 6 p.m. on Sundays. Hmm. Now, the the purpose of these blue laws was to sort of create these sort of cultural jigs that help sort of create incentives for people to go to church or disincentives for people that skipped church. And these laws have been steadily repealed for years and years now. The reason I bring them up, though, is that blue laws are a significant part of a study that was recently published. We will link to this in our show notes about the rise of deaths of despair. And what's interesting about this study is that the authors of the study are essentially directly connecting that the end of blue laws with decrease in church participation and a correlation in the rise of deaths of despair. It's fascinating because it pushes back against the narrative that many of us and many of our listeners will be familiar with, that many of the deaths of despair uh, are related to opioid addiction. Here's one of those sort of breakdowns they provide in the study. Blue laws are repealed in the early 90s. Very shortly, church attendance drops by 10%. And then this is a quote. They say, about one in 5,000 of the marginal attenders, these people who quit going to church after the blue laws ended, about one in 5,000 of these so-called marginal attenders would consequently die from suicide, liver disease, or poisoning annually. And again, before the rise of OxyContin, it's fascinating to me to think about some of these other conversations we've had over the years and in this show even about the decline of institutions, the decline of the formative role of the church in life, and this correlation then with, with deaths of despair. Yeah, I think that this study is right and wrong. It's clearly right that the same factors that are leading to a loss of church attendance, church membership, especially among people without a college degree, that's true. 
I don't think the blue laws, though, are the reason. I think that the loss of blue laws comes with a cultural move that's Mm -hmm. related to both of those things. But you and I both know people in our lives who are in this unique situation of despair. In my case, mostly men disconnected from churches altogether, even though they might be you know, willing to fight on behalf of Christianity uh, all the time, but they're not in a church. It's not because they're fishing. Mm -hmm. It's instead because their isolation leads to more isolation. And so there's a sense of withdrawing in various ways leads to more withdrawal. And we just know that a lack of connection leads to this kind of despair. So I don't think that returning to blue laws is going to, to correct this. <laughs> sure. uh, instead, and as a, you know, as a Baptist who believes in separation of church and state, I think this one really is one for the church more than it is for the state. And I think there are some things that have changed in American life that we haven't recognized in ways that it's leaving some people out. Yeah, I, I, that makes a ton of sense to me. And part of it is just the logic of, well, why did the blue laws get repealed? Who wants to enforce blue laws You know, when church is in, you know, is in decline? Uh, one of the laws is uh, in Georgia, you're not allowed to walk around with an ice cream cone in your back pocket. Somewhere I read that that yeah, has to do with horse sense. theft. You know, makes sense. Um, but so who, you know, what cop wants to arrest a guy on Sunday for walking around with an ice cream cone in his back pocket? So it's, you know, it's the lagging indicator on this kind of stuff. I find it pretty fascinating, though, because I think a ton about the way participation in worship in the church is this profoundly formative thing in and of mm-hmm. itself. And when we disconnect people from that kind of participation, singing the songs, praying in community, hearing the word read and preached and all the rest of it, when the practice itself gets disconnected, something really significant is lost. And that shows up in the study as well, because part of the data they show is this decline in church attendance, this rise of despair. But the line of people who more or less confess belief, you know, at the line of people who even say, I pray privately every single day, that line's mm-hmm. flat throughout the study. Yeah. So there's actually yeah. something about the loss of participation and loss of practice that seems to be uh, a, a contributing indicator as well. Well, part of that, I think, is the way that cultural Christianity has evolved. There was a time when I would look around at kind of what was going on, especially in the Bible Belt, and would say, cultural Christianity, that understanding of you have to be a member of such and such church, even if you don't believe anything, or even if you don't necessarily go, but you you belong there to be a good person. That that's just the, that's the default, that that was going away. And that's true. It has, but it's just sort of mutated to where now we have a kind of cultural Christianity where without any sort of cognitive dissonance, people can belong to no church at all, but can post Christian memes to social media all day long. So it's changed in that way and in some ways has led to the worst of both possible worlds. So you have this sense of outward tribal Christianity without actual life and you have loneliness and disconnection at the same time. That's a Mm -hmm. really toxic combo. And I think there's a conundrum for the church in terms of how the church has tried to navigate a lot of this stuff. The church has become increasingly a place that's driven by the platform. And by that, I mean, not just, you know, sort of the celebrity pastor thing, but really church services are often very much performed from the platform in a way that Mm -hmm. isn't participatory. 
And so when church becomes a show, people start looking for the best show. And it's this sort of unvirtuous cycle where people want to find the best show. Churches feel like they have to play into the incentives that lean that way. And then I think there's like a secular imagination thing happening in the church too, where church leaders, and maybe even to an extent those in the pews, are coming to the gathering without a real sense of confidence that the Word and the Spirit and the work of the people in the traditional sense of what the church does when they gather, that that's actually going to have a formative effect, that that's actually going to be what nourishes the soul and is meaningful. And so as a result, there's kind of this cynical turn that says, well, look, if if we're not positive God's going to show up at this thing, then, you know, it's like an athlete who starts taking performance enhancers. Like, we need to juice this service to make sure that people are moved and stirred by it. And the flip side of that is that people like me, when I was in ministry for 15 years, who struggled with that and felt like there was something profoundly unfortunate about it, you end up feeling like somebody who's yelling at your church, you know, to eat their broccoli when, when you yeah. say, let's read the scripture, let's confess our sins, let's let's take more time together, and that this service is about you. That just strikes me as a really complicated place that we've arrived in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, and you know, I think part of it is the New Testament gives us this really clear revelation that we're to teach one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that the gathering of the church is one body with many members. A key part of that is the fact that everybody within the body actually is counted on and is serving somebody. And One of the reasons I think we've lost that is because it's like anything else. There's a shadow side of something that's good, and that's a commitment to excellence, which is to say we don't want to be in a situation where we have people who really aren't good at what they're doing in a way that I think has really cost us. I mean, because it's not just the people on the platform. It's not just that they're ministering to everybody else. They're also modeling or are to model what it means to use one's gifts and to be shaped and formed in them. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think all the time, my first church, we had a woman who had come to faith in Christ relatively recently. She had been a nightclub singer. Uh, She wanted to sing a solo. She sang a solo. The words were perfectly appropriate, but in a nightclub-y sort of a a way. And uh, I was just looking out and thinking, oh, my old ladies here are going to be furious. And they were, but they were furious because they came up and said, now, Brother Russ, we think you look like you were embarrassed by what Rhonda was doing. And I Mm. said, yeah. And they said, well, then you really need to go home and pray and repent. Because, you know, the Lord's using Rhonda. She doesn't know how to do everything yet. And that's fine. And I thought, you know, they're exactly right. I mean, that is a key part of it. And so Mm -hmm. if you have people who don't really know how they can serve, they're not going to be able to connect. And I'll just go ahead. My wife calls this my um, you kids get off my lawn sort of uh, speech that I'll give about this and I'll give about Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. So these are the two things. Uh, But when it comes to the loss of adult Sunday school, and the problem for that for me is not the loss of biblical literacy, although that comes with it. It's that there's an entire group of people 
that you can't just say, get in a small group together and commune. Mm -hmm. and find community in this community group any more than you can say to somebody with insomnia, hey, you really need to sleep. (laughs) That doesn't work. But there are all sorts of ways where people can kind of come at it slant and they're able to say, okay, I'm here to study the Bible. It's kind of, there's old, um, uh, there's an old uh, country song, Honky Tonk America. Uh, that's talking about a a honky tonk in a nightclub. And it says, you know, not about loneliness. It's just, we really like, like the music here. I mean, (laughs) you actually are able to get lonely people if they're able to think, well, we're really here for the music. And Mm. I think we've kind of lost something of that. And so there are a lot of people, especially in that demographic, the study's looking at who feel like they don't have anything to contribute to society anymore. And when in the church, they don't see how they can contribute. We're just going to lose them. And that hurts the church and it hurts them. The study itself focuses broadly on men and women, middle-aged men and women. But what you're talking Mm -hmm. about makes me think about the fact, you know, there's other research that shows this rise in deaths of despair has had a particularly disproportionate effect on men. You know, this is a constant refrain in the church, at least as long as I've been in church leadership in various ways, that connecting men to the church is a crisis of sorts. How do you get men involved? How do you get them to commit? And I think part of what you're talking about is, you know, points to this idea of that men need common cause, something that they can kind of put their hands to that's meaningful and purposeful. And in doing that, you know, that provides a context for relationships that's a little more natural. It also makes me think about the moment we're in where you have these personalities like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson that are very appealing to men on various levels because they're sort of pushing towards Give your life purpose, commit yourself to things, get out of bed in the morning, do something that matters, make your bed, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you and I could do a whole podcast on, you know, what we think about Jordan Peterson in particular. But the church has looked for those kinds of solutions for a long time. I mean, I made a podcast all about this called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill in Mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways, Jordan Peterson is the smarter, Jungian secularized Mark Driscoll because part of the appeal of Driscoll was to sort of scream at particularly young men, you're losers. Who the hell do you think you are? You know, as your as Rise of Fall of Mars Hill would start <laughs> off with. And there's a sense of catharsis for a lot of people that can come with that or a sense of, okay, somebody is telling me how to do this. I can do it. But that just doesn't work with gurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're intended to have people in our lives who are shaping us and forming us. And honestly, I think, I mean, I, I kind of had an epiphany. Uh, I think it was last year when at our church, we were going to have a 7 a.m. men's breakfast, which, you know, I'm in a non-denominational evangelical church now. And so I, I think breakfast, I'm still thinking Southern Baptist breakfast, which is right. eggs and biscuits and it's coffee and Danish. So I had to adjust to that. But it's also <laughs> the fact that I thought, you know, my sons are going to hate this being up at seven on a Saturday, being with a bunch of old guys, but they need it. And what I found was they loved it and talked about it forever. And I thought, why? It's because I could look over and see my 15-year-old praying for a 55-year-old man who Mm. was struggling and Mm. said, I need some prayer for my marriage. 
Hmm. And I realized my sons were being treated not as kids and not as, you know, a ministry. They were being treated as part of the church with responsibilities. We all need that all of our lives. And if we don't have it, I mean, I think of uh, with uh, orphan care, foster care, maybe the best church I've ever seen do this is a church that had a, a mechanic in the congregation one Sunday morning who said, God's gifted me to repair cars. We've got single moms in our community who don't know how to do basic car repair and who are getting taken advantage of. I'm here first Saturday of every month, and I'll look at your car and tell you what shape it's in and teach you how to hmm. change spark plugs and, and change oil and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, that was good for the ministry, but it was also really good for that man who could hmm. say, I don't have to be a Bible teacher to be a, a connected, serving, needed uh, part of this congregation. I have to be the person that God has gifted, which is First Corinthians. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's what the church is to be. And right. when that's not there, I think we end up with disconnection, and then that ends with despair. Yeah, you hear all this talk about sort of low expectations versus high expectations churches. But I think a lot of that language is, sort of connects to, well, here are all the things we require of you as a member, the hoops you have to jump through to become a member. But I think what's really bond-forming is inviting people to put their hands to something that provides a sense of meaning, provides a sense of purpose and gratitude. You always walk away from those kinds of experiences feeling grateful for the encounters you had and the relationships that you built. There's something about the mutuality that comes with not only do I need you, I don't know my Bible, I need you to teach it to me. I don't know how to sing, I need you to teach it to me. But also, you need me. Mm -hmm. I'm needed. And if I'm not there, it's not just that somebody's going to say, oh, where did John go? I need to. It's that something's not going to happen mm -hmm. because we need John. That's the truth. We just don't know it. And right. so we kind of impoverish ourselves because we're not putting the imagination forward to sometimes say, we don't know how God has gifted everybody here, and we don't know what all sorts of ways that ought to express itself, but that's what we're committed to finding out. Yeah, I love I love that point because it, it brings it back to the, you know, where this conversation started. The danger of despair isn't out there for someone else. It's in every one of our own hearts, and yeah. we have to... I think, look at a study like this and just see it as a call to invest ourselves in the communities of faith that we're, the churches that we're a part of. You know, and I think one part of that is this is a word that comes up over and over and over again, especially in my experience with men who are kind of coming out of the whirlwind of their 20s or 30s. And many of them are saying, I don't know how to make friends because I'm not, you know, in school, you sort of you're in class together and you you study together, or you do something like that, or you start a new job and you're, you know, but, but I don't know how to make friends because it's awkward. Because it, you know, as one person said, it feels like I have to go up and say to somebody, hey, I want to be your friend. Can you be my friend? And that's just weird. Mm -hmm. And so there aren't those organic ways for people to actually look back and say, hey, you know what? We actually are friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and that kind of happened while we weren't paying attention to it. That's that's what I think is is a, in, in American mobility has something to do with that. There are all kinds of yep. factors along with just this 
self-protectiveness, I mean, it feels really vulnerable and needy to yeah. say, I need you. And yeah. that's a hard thing to do in American life right now. Well, and it goes back to what you said about the small groups challenge, right? Like most people walk into a small group for the first time and there's something deeply uncomfortable about, welcome to my home. Now, please share the most intimate details of your life with me. Oh yeah. It's like we need yeah. to find these lower stakes ways to, to connect that will you know, ultimately form those, those deeper bonds. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole thing, which is coming back now, I'm noticing it had gone away, the sort of in church services, turn around, shake the hand of your neighbor and say, you know, I mean, that's coming back now. You're just like, I'm sure there are some people for whom that really forms a connection and there, but then there's a lot of us that are like, oh, and we kind of, <laughs> we kind of catch each other's eyes. Like, you know, maybe we commune by saying, can you get me out of here? Right. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at each other going, well, I don't want to do this and you don't want to do this. So let's just have a nod yeah. and go our separate ways. When, when I started preaching in, in when we moved to Kentucky uh, and I started seeing deacons who were smoking out, out in public. I mean, we had people who smoked, but they didn't do it in front of people. But they were smoking out on the front of the, the church. Uh, a, a lot, it was shocking to me, but then I noticed a lot of that was happening during that shaking hands time. Nice. And I'm realizing just now saying this to you, there probably was more actual connection and communion <laughs> happening out there than there was in, in the church. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So, Russell, you are in D.C. right now for the Stand for Life rally. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, and it comes, you know, a few months after a Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court that overturned that ruling and returned regulation of abortion to the states. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about where is the pro-life movement right now, and where do those who care about this issue, where, where should we be thinking about what, what matters in the moment? Well, I'm not sure that there's one pro-life movement right now because there's quite a bit of difference between the people for whom this is sort of an abstraction or a political issue to win with and the people who are actually in the trenches. That's what I like about this gathering. It's sort of the successor to a gathering that we started several years ago coinciding with the March for Life called at that time Evangelicals for Life, which is to say, mm -hmm. look, there are all kinds of people who care about human dignity, 
people who emphasize the gospel have a unique contribution to make to that and we need to gather, as well as people who care about the totality of human life. And so it's kind of an ambiguous time because I think for a lot of people in the grassroots, they assumed, okay, when Roe's gone, abortion's gone. And that's not the case. I mean, even with uh, state laws, abortions moving technologically from the clinical to the chemical. So that mm-hmm. changes. I mean, the state laws can't do a lot about that, at least right now. And you also have just the way that technology is moving. And then these additional questions of euthanasia and Canada and and those sorts of things. It's a kind of ambiguous moment. And so I think there are a lot of people who are not just reflecting back on the last 50 years, but who are saying, what is this going to look like 50 years from now? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the people who actually have the most to contribute to this are the people who are the least known in Washington and in state capitals. Because, I mean, for all of the caricature of, well, pro-life people think life begins at conception and ends at birth, and that's all they care about. If I'm going into a community and I'm trying to get people to care about refugees and immigrants coming into their communities, the first place I go are to the women who are leading pregnancy resource centers, crisis pregnancy uh, ministries, because they're the people who already have an understanding of human vulnerability. They don't do culture war demonization. Because if you're actually caring for women in crisis and you want to love both mother and child, that's not the way to do it. Mm-hmm. So you, you end up with people who really do have a holistic view of the image of God and a concern for, for, caring, uh, for caring for people who are vulnerable. And so they're the ones who are involved in the foster care system. They are the ones who are involved in working with the poor, in, with job training, all of that. And so if that can be harnessed at a larger scale, I think it can be really powerful. I agree. I do think it's an especially interesting time when you have, you know, the rise of this euthanasia law in, in Canada. And, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe you could explain that a little bit before we get any further with it, because I think that's a big deal. Well, what the Canadian law does is essentially, if you think of the argument for euthanasia, it's usually framed as death with dignity. So you want to give people the freedom, usually framed in this very libertarian sense of, you know, no one else should tell you what to do with your body. And so you ought to be able to decide that. Well, I mean, there are all kinds of problems with that. But what happens in Canada is that you actually have uh, people call in for medical treatment and they're being asked, do you want to provide a death plan? And often in many cases, people being told how much of a burden financially they are going to end up being on the state Mm -hmm. or on their family and all of that. It's really, really insidious. And it all comes from the same place, which is to say people's value has to do with how useful they are. That very Darwinian sense of your value is that. Mm -hmm. And so I think about all the time, I think about Canada, I think it was Gilbert Mylander several years ago, who said, I want to live old enough to be a burden to my children. Hmm. And the the reason he said that is because, you know, often people will say, I just don't want to live long enough that I'm a burden to my children. And they think that that's coming from a place of humility, but it actually ends up being prideful. 
Because what I'm saying is I don't want to have to be cared for for other people. And it, it, mm-hmm. it plays into that understanding of if you're a burden, you shouldn't be a burden. Well, we're always a burden mm-hmm. to, to one another. I mean, that's, right. that's part of what love is. And so that's that's really a dangerous sort of development. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading research years ago that showed that the number one reason people wanted euthanasia was not their own pain and suffering, but the sense that they were a burden on their families, that they were a burden on the people that they loved. And it gets to something that I think speaks to abortion. It speaks to euthanasia. It speaks to something else we were texting about earlier this week, the population crisis in China and what that potentially Mm -hmm. means, that there's this scarcity mindset that Mm -hmm. the world has limited resources, we have limited resources, we have limited opportunities. And so human life itself has to be constrained because the resources are constrained, which is a fundamentally unbiblical, unchristian way of thinking. And it's popularized, I think, in some of these utilitarian ways. It's also increasingly popularized amongst a certain segment of the climate change activists that see the growth of human population as a major contributor to climate change, which there's almost no evidence for that at all. Mm -hmm. Who are the voices that you hear that are pushing for the cause of life with that sense of abundance, with the, the positive vision? Of babies, you know, the good of babies in the world. Well, I mean, I think there are many people who are doing that and they're coming at it from different ways. I mean, there's a new book by Adam Kirsch on the revolt against humanity Hmm. in which he argues that you can look at the rise of two things that seem to be completely contradictory. Anti-humanism, which says, as you said, the world would be better off if human beings were extinct. So that's what we ought to kind of hope for. Because all we are is a pestilence. And then the transhumanists who are saying, no, 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 no. We don't want to get back to the way the world was before human beings. We want to transcend that and technologically transcend what it means to be human. But both of them are actually getting at the same place, which is to say the limitations that come upon human beings, that's a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. rather than to see that as something to be loved and to be embraced. We can look at that, especially those of us who do have a concern for human dignity. We can look at that sometimes and think, well, that's somebody else's problem. But every one of us are grappling with that way of kind of defining people in terms of, of usefulness. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think often of the poet David White was talking one time about the elderly. And he said, the problem with the elderly is that they're invisible because we only notice the people who are moving at the same velocity that that Hmm. we are. And Hmm. that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's what happens is we find ways to make people invisible around us if they're not useful to us. And then you add to that this politicized sort of moment where uh, the people who are visible to you are those that your tribe allows to be your neighbor. And so there are some people who I love my immigrant neighbors and I love my refugee neighbors, but when I'm thinking about the unborn, I use language to say embryo, pregnancy, so forth. I get really squeamish about that. Or the reverse. We had a pro-life event uh, one time where one of the people who was going to be involved with it uh, with us said, okay, we can do that and we'll do it, but you can't talk about race uh, or about refugees. 
and because that'll take away from abortion. I said, okay, um, can we talk about euthanasia? Yeah. Can we talk about adoption and foster care? Yeah. Can we talk about uh, reproductive technologies? Yeah. So, okay, well, then your issue is not that you only want to talk about abortion. It's that you want to decide who are the people that your mm -hmm. tribe will have backlash against you on and who won't. And I mean, that is the logic of the culture of death. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's exactly what it is. And so we have to break out of that. I, I mean, you think about uh, Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the, the key point is that the rich man doesn't even really believe that Lazarus is part of his story. Priest mm -hmm. and the Levite, when they pass by the man beaten on the side of the road, when they're sitting down and, and sort of narrating their life, it's not, I was the guy that passed that beaten up guy on my way to Jericho. They don't even remember him or notice him at all. Yeah. And that's a temptation for all of us. Not just, and that's why I think with Matthew 25, one of the startling things about it, I mean, we all are familiar with this. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, the, the, as you did to the least of these among us, is that both the sheep and the goats in that story are shocked. When did this happen? We, we, we don't even know. So I think it's something that the way that we go about this is not to say, okay, well, here are the people who do recognize human dignity, and here are the people who don't, mm -hmm. as much as it is to say, we're fallen people who don't want to recognize human dignity and the people who are inconvenient to us, so who are they? Yeah. And sometimes there are going to be different answers for different people. It always kind of comes back to language. It always comes back to the kinds of stories we're telling about how culture works, what the good life is. One of the things I always think about when it comes to children, you see so much discussion, whether it's in the news or in the media or the way television and movies portray it, that like having a child is this sort of terrifying thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember right before our first daughter was born, my father-in-law, we were at, out at dinner one night and we were kind of feeling the excitement and the, you know, the anxiety of the baby coming the next day. I just remember he put his his hand on my wife's shoulder and he said, when you go to the hospital to have a baby, it's the one time you go to the hospital for something that's completely normal and completely mm. good. Mm -hmm. And it really changed the frame in our heads. It, it, it sort of took so much of the anxiety out of it. And I think when I think about Christian witness around this stuff, that seems like an opportunity. Those kinds of stories, you know, I was talking to a friend who who was about to have a baby and and she was describing her own anxieties. Like, I she's like, I look at the pocketbook and it's like, we can just make it with this. And oh my goodness, what if we have another baby or, or whatever? And I said, that, you know, there's something mysterious about the world that when that other baby comes, it works out. Like, I, I can't explain mm -hmm. it. And I, I don't think, I don't think we have to explain it if we genuinely believe that we live in a cosmos overseen by a God who cares for us. As long as I think we keep in mind having a baby is a catastrophe for a lot of people. So, sure. uh, for instance, for the single mom who can't even get paid time off uh, in order to even have the baby, much less to deal with childcare. But the issue is the problem's not the baby. The, the right. problem's not this this mystery of human life. The problem are these other circumstances that we ought to all care about and ought to all work on. Right. And it's just easier to say, don't have a baby, 
than it is to say, why is this woman in such a situation in which she feels as though she has to choose between her life and the life of her child? We can love them both. And that's kind of my point. Like, I feel like part of the reason even structurally, you know, societally, Mm -hmm. that a company sort of looks at a single mom and says, well, you got yourself into this place is because the the culture itself doesn't doesn't believe this is a common good the birth of a child is right. a common good and we need to support and and provide a way to help the child thrive help the mother thrive i always think about there's a great section at the very end of hannah arendt's political philosophy book the human condition where she basically says the greatest hope for humanity under conditions of tyranny is the birth of children because Children come into the world, they're new people with new ideas, with new ways of seeing things. And, you know, she actually quotes Isaiah, you know, for unto us a child is born, because she's thinking of it very pragmatically that the renewal of the human race on earth is itself a renewing process that can address tyranny, that can address injustice. And I would just love to see a church telling that story and working for that kind of common good. I mean, I think about uh, Wendell Berry uh, talked one time about in The Hidden Wound, I think about mm-hmm. how the candor of children <laughs> is a threat to, he said, both to racist societies and to Puritan ones yeah. because children haven't learned how to lie in the mm-hmm. right ways. And so that sort of candor and that newness that comes along with it is a threat, but also the vulnerability. You think about the way that the the scripture speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. We cry, Abba. It puts us in the position of an infant completely dependent and crying out to a parent. And that's where we're all going to end up. Mm. Jesus said to Peter, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted, but the day is going to come when someone else will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And of course, he was referring to crucifixion, but every human being goes through a kind of crucifixion because we all end up that dependent and we don't like to think of that because we like to think of ourselves as independent, self-dependent gods. So road ahead for the abortion cause. What should Christians be thinking about, investing in, caring for? I think one of the things we've got to pay attention to right now is what uh, Eugene Peterson used to say, that the one thing that the church needs is what the United States House of Representatives has, which is a Ways and Means Committee, <laughs> which is to say the issue is not just the goal. It also is the, the ways and the means that you pursue that goal. And I think that's true here. Because he said, you can't have the Jesus life or the Jesus truth without the Jesus way. The problem is there's a way to come in and have some short-term victories here, however you define victory, that actually can make the situation worse than it was before. A church that doesn't have the kind of credibility of actually embodying what it means to love vulnerable people, whoever they are, that's not going to turn out well. So we have to keep the, the ends and the ways together, I think. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. All right, Russell, so we're going to talk about 
what is either the war on gas stoves or the fake war on gas stoves. I've got kind of the uh, the punchline timeline here of what happened. We had, in December, a letter written by a number of members of Congress to the Consumer Product Safety Division that gas stoves were dangerous. January 7th, Kathy Hochul, governor of New York, introduces a bill banning gas stoves. January 9th, Richard Trumka said he's the head of the Consumer Product Safety Division, that all options are on the table for dealing with the problem of gas stoves. Okay, so a little context. There's been a number of studies about this in the last few years. They're sort of linking them to climate change, linking them to asthma and children. Asthma and children's the big thing here. There was an article that sort of broke this down that showed a lot of these studies are funded by activist groups. One of the ones that's cited very often is a Stanford study that showed major health issues. But the article pointed out the Stanford study that showed that being in a room with gas stove was dangerous was conducted in a room that had been hermetically sealed, like, you know, Dexter style, (laughs) where they turned on a gas vent. It's like, well, yeah, that would kill anybody. So there's definitely some climate change-driven, activist-driven stuff. And I'm not critical of the climate change debates. Like, There's a lot to say in various directions on that. But anyway, the point being, there's very clearly a number of initiatives that sort of came out to this end. You have a number of blue cities that have already banned gas stoves in new construction. So then cue the freak out. You've got people like Jim Jordan, Ron DeSantis, Ronnie Jackson. Jim Jordan tweeted, God guns gas stoves. Ronnie Jackson tweeted, um, I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come for my gas stove, they can pull it from my cold, dead hands. Ron DeSantis said, don't tread on Florida and don't mess with gas stoves. Side note, Florida has the lowest percentage of homes with gas stoves in the entire United States. Another group of congressional Republicans introduced the Stop Trying to Obsessively Vilify Energy Act, which you may notice spells stove, the Stove Act. Okay, so that's the backlash. But then you get the other backlash, which is story after story after story from the left saying, Nobody wants to take away your gas stoves. Who made gas stoves a part of the identity of the right? You people are crazy. When, again, clearly there's initiatives all over the place to ban gas stoves. Um, Some of these are already on the books. Trumka even said any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. Okay. This is just a perfect example of what's completely dysfunctional in our politics. Somebody provokes, you get a crazy backlash, and then the provocateur says, you know, they, it's gaslighting. It's like, what? Who's, who made gas stoves an issue all of a sudden? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so is this just a cycle that's going to repeat forever? And you've been attuned to this longer than I have. Has it always been this way? You know, you're talking to maybe the only person you know who was almost killed by a gas stove. (laughs) So I I may have a little more credibility there, but it it was because we had a broken gas line uh, when Marie and I were first married and we we literally almost blew up the house. So I survived gas stoves (laughs) to be here with you uh, today. Uh, You know, I think about with this, even just as you're recounting this, I, I think about In my denomination, at one point, we had a big controversy between the conservatives and the moderates back in the 1980s, 1990s. And one uh, figure said, you know, both sides were right about each other. (laughs) <laughs> they, they weren't right about a lot of it. So the conservatives were right that there were some serious theological problems here that people didn't want to hear. 
And the liberals were right that these conservatives, or at least a lot of them, didn't really care about theology. They just wanted power and would mm-hmm. continue to narrow and narrow and narrow and fight. And so they were both right halfway, but they were right about the others. I think that's true here. With a lot of these things, it's exactly the pattern that you have where you have a small group of people who say, we should do this. And then you have a group of people who say, can you believe they're trying to take away my fill in the blank? (laughs) Everybody wins among those groups because you're able to have this sense of threat and catastrophe. Suppose there is a problem with gas stoves. Uh, Let's just assume that there is a problem environmentally and in terms of children's health. The best way that we get out of that is with technological advancement, not just saying, okay, all of you with gas stoves are now just going to have to fend for yourselves. That's not Mm -hmm. the way that you do it. It's just very difficult in American life right now to say, eh, that's not really a good idea. There's a better way because Mm -hmm. that doesn't raise a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Instead, what raises a lot of money is to say, look what they're coming to do to you. They're they're Mm -hmm. coming to get you. And I'm the one who can protect you from it. And the very fact that I have these things is a way of self-identity of saying who I am as opposed to you. I mean, we saw that with masks and vaccines back during COVID, and we see it here. It's always been there to some degree, but never like it is now in a social media context. And I agree with you. I mean, I think when we think about crisis, innovation is definitely the way to go. But even at that, there was a lot of commentary that was making the case, and it's flatly true, that the gas stove has massive advantages for chefs over a standard Mm -hmm. electric range. And the response from a lot of people was like, well— just buy an induction stove, which is like $1,500 versus $400 for, you know, a gas stove. I I just look at this and I'm, I'm like, of all the things for us as a country to care about right now, of all the things we're dealing with, you know, healthcare crises, the adoption and foster care issues in the United States, of all the things for this to become front and center. And it's, you know, it makes, it makes you cynical on a really deep level to just think, At both ends of the spectrum, this is performative. I don't even remember who said this about faculty debates Mm. are so vicious because the stakes are so low. (laughs) Uh, A lot of these controversies, that's really what it is. The stakes are so low because both sides are kind of, we know nobody's going to get rid of gas stoves. But there's an entertainment kind of value that comes along with it as well. All right. So to wrap this up, Russell. Do you have a gas stove or an electric stove? Uh, I have an electric stove now, but I had a gas stove for for most of our lives. Yeah. And I mean – Including the one that almost killed you. <laughs> yeah, including the one that almost killed me. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think we had like a carbon monoxide thing yeah. because our first six months of marriage, we were both just like napping all the time. <laughs> just like, why are we so tired? And yeah. yeah. We fixed the gas. No, I first my first several years of marriage, we lived in these old apartments in the, the highlands in Louisville and everything over there was gas. And it was not just gas, but it was the gas that, you know, has the pilot light that's always burning, you know, oh, no, yeah. no electric ignition. Oh yeah. So for sure, you know, we were breathing. That's what we had. And no ventilation either, of course. So we were definitely yeah. on the uh the worst end of it. I, I have an electric stove. It is not a nice one, and I hate it. So that's yeah. that's the story for me. All I know how to do is to boil eggs. 
So <laughs> that was going to be my question: is how much? That was my next question: how much do you use? Do you use the stove? So none. And as a matter eggs. of fact, even that's so complicated <laughs> that I ordered one of those little machines that boils the eggs uh, for you with steam or something like that. But I can't even figure out that. I mean, <laughs> I, I have I have a very limited range of skills. Right. Uh, you know, some of the things I do, I I do with all my heart, but I can't do anything else. And so right. it's. Well, maybe someday we'll do a live event on online here uh, for bulletin listeners and uh, we can get Yia Vang to come back on and teach you oh, how to boil yeah. eggs properly on your. That would be, stuff. that would be worth it. Yeah. All right. That's it for us this week. Thanks for listening and we will see you next Friday. The bulletin is a production of Christianity today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Producer and editor, Azure Phelps. Additional editing and operations, Matt Stevens. Music by Dan Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Audio recording by Core Media. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. I'm Mike Cosper. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.